0: I'm Jennifer Kayong Lee, your host, and with me here is David Rowe, who will be talking about his book, Minor trans pacific Triangulating American, Japanese, and Korean Fictions, which was released by Stanford University Press in 2021. In Minor Trans-Pacific, David brings Asian-Americanist study of Korean-American literature in conversation with Asian studies scholars' work on Zainichi Korean literature, that is, the literature of ethnic Koreans displaced to Japan during the Japanese occupation of Korea, to model what a sustained dialogue between Asian studies and Asian-American studies might reveal about both Korean-American and Zainichi literatures. Thank you so much for joining me, David.
2: Good afternoon, Jennifer. It's really a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, it's. Exciting to talk to you. So, I was wondering if you could start by telling us a bit about yourself.
2: Yeah. Hi. Uh, so, I'm a associate professor of English at the University of Utah. Um, I'm also a director of Digital Matters, which is a digital humanities hub here. Um, and I have, you know, an interest in Asian-American studies, Trans-Pacific Asian-American studies, which led to this book, but also I was uh, a secondary or primary uh, interest in digital humanities. Um, and I have to make a confession right away that I'm not actually, I wasn't actually trained as an Asian-Americanist um, in graduate school. My my primary area was like new media studies. and But at, the, at while I was in graduate school, you know, I, I had this uh, interest in Asian-American studies um, and I, I kind of cultivated that throughout. Um and it eventually led to this book. Um, but originally, I'm from Southern California, born and raised in Southern California, um, the son of merchant class immigrants, um, and uh, a lover of dogs and snowboarding. <laughs> I don't know what else you want to know.
0: Yeah, thanks. Snowboarding. Can you snowboard in Utah? <laughs> uh,
2: they they kind of look down upon snowboarders, <laughs> but you know, I, I try to sneak in when no one's looking.
0: Okay. Um. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um. I guess I'll start with our usual big questions. So, what brought you to this project of Minor Trans Pacific?
2: Um. Well, I can answer that two ways. Uh. The first is the you know the professional answer being that um you know I'm, I'm intellectually interested in bridging Asian studies and Asian American studies because I I thought that there's a lot of uh overlap or or an area for Kind of rich discussions or conversations take place but i didn't really see that happening so much in the existing scholarship um and that i thought was a real lack um and you know i, I had had an interest in zainichi literature and creative american literature and i thought wow you know this they have some shared histories and some similarities but you know huge divergences as well and i think it'd be really fun to kind of put them in conversation with each other um so that's the, the professional uh answer but Uh, The personal answer is um, that, you know, I grew up uh, constantly kind of being reminded of Japanese colonialism by my family and my my parents, my father in particular. Like, um, you know, I I don't recall, I don't have like a specific memory, but, um, you know, I'd always remember, I, I kind of had this indication that we, we as a family didn't like Japanese folks, <laughs> for some reason, um, even though it was very, you know, different from my lived experience as an a Asian American growing up in Southern California. Um, but you know, I I I had sort of a kind of cursory interest in Japan, you know, Japanese pop culture and what have you. And I ended up going to Japan to teach English after college, just on a whim. Um, but before I left for college, my dad, my father, took me aside and he said. You know, (laughs) you had better not come back with a Japanese partner. And just, it's just like very explicitly told me, like, you are not allowed to uh, be with a Japanese person. And I I thought, well, you know, I don't really know why this is an issue because, you know, it's not like they're banging down my door in the first place. But uh, it was, to me, a reminder of sort of the long tail of Japanese colonialism that wasn't really discussed in. Uh, contemporary um, sort of discussions about Korean-American uh, lives in, in in the U.S. Um, and I thought, that, again, that was a kind of a, a neglect. Um, and um, then, you know, when I was in Japan, I encountered this uh, whole um, community of Zainichi Koreans, which I, I never knew about before. I was completely ignorant. I just never come across them um, in any of my studies or, in um, you know any kind of knowledge or anything, um, and so I became really interested in that community, their history, and their literature. Um, and I started studying Japanese. I continued uh, studying Japanese in graduate school to the point where I could start actually reading the, the primary sources, and um, you know that, that led me down this path to to uh, writing minor trans Pacific.
0: Yeah, thanks. Um, I think I guess building on what you've just started to talk about and i think i'm sure we'll continue to talk about this throughout the next hour but in in minor trans-pacific you say really eloquently that the historical legacy of Asian American studies being born of a necessary alliance among Asian ethnicities in the United States effectively renders Imperial Japan inarticulable in Asian American criticism. And those are your words. Um, And so I was wondering if you could just elaborate a bit for our listeners about that tension between a pan-ethnic Asian American identity and the specter of Japanese empire within Asia and yeah like whichever part of that you would like to
2: yeah um so that's that's kind of the the crux of the book uh the the kind of intervention I'm trying to make um in that um and is you know this is an accident of history um and uh you know the asian American subject formation uh you know if it, it's manufactured in some ways, it's a result of um some bureaucrats in the census deciding that. Asian Americans; these categories and these uh, geographic origins belong together, um, and that led to um, um, the uh, sort of mobilization of Asian Americans as an identity. And uh, since those categorizations are already there, um, there was a need for political solidarity, um, and you know that that's completely understandable and uh, necessity. Um, But what has happened with this kind of shared pan-Asian-American ethnic solidarity and identity is that some of the tensions and complexities um, and um, nuances have been kind of glided over are uh, made kind of politically inconvenient in in an Asian-American context. And so there, I think, has been either a reluctance or a disincentive to explore those tensions. Um, and it's not to say that there's any like present antipathy between like fourth generation Japanese Americans and second, third generation Korean Americans. I think you know it's pretty much you know, not not so much the case. But um, I think there is a long legacy, a long tail of Japanese colonies, not just with um, you know, Korea, but you know the Philippines and, uh, and other locations, um, and China, of course, um, that I think is quite you know fascinating and. Um, because that there has been this historical disincentive um, it hasn't really been addressed. And so my project has been trying to kind of um, make that visible again.
0: Yeah, I think even finding the language to articulate that is is super powerful and helpful. Um, but yeah, in so in your first chapter, you have a really, Fascinating and nuanced reading of Yong-Hil Kang's East Goes West and the Taylorist Organization of Labor in comparative Japanese-American contexts. Personally, I found your discussion at the end of that chapter where you describe how Kang's writing shifts after Korean liberation when the U.S. and Japan continued to occupy Korea to be just really interesting. I was wondering if you could tell us more about that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, Kong's a great example because, you know, he's he's a uh, really early example of of Korean-American literature. He's uh, sometimes termed uh, the father of Korean-American literature. Um, And a lot of Asian-American critics will read East Goes West um, as, you know, an Asian-American novel, like the classic immigrant novel. Uh, But when I read it, I think the first or second time, you know, all I could see was how he was writing in conversation with not just the US and Korea, but with Japan as well. Um, and his writings, if you look at the this body of work, he's always had Japan on his mind, right? Um, he's, he's a translator of Japanese literature as well. Um, and uh, I think the sort of organizing principle of his work was, you know, he was stridently anti-colonialist, right? And so post-liberation, what happened was that um, Kong's kind of sort of focus of his ire uh, moved from Japan to the U.S. because now the U.S. is occupying Korea and was sort of the primary colonial presence, imperial presence in Korea. And I I don't think it's any accident that after uh, his his writing shifted that, um, you know, he was kind of fallen out of favor and, and had to kind of disappeared uh, because uh, there was just no place for him in uh, the US American literary world anymore.
0: Yeah, I thought that point was just really well made. Um, yeah, I'm uh, oh, sorry, I just yeah.
2: wanted to add here. Um, I also just read a, a, wrote a chapter for uh, Asian American Literature Literature in Transition where I kind of expand upon this on, on Kong's work. And um, I found really interesting resources that your, your listeners might be interested if they're interested in, in exploring Kong. But I, I found like some recordings of him uh, at I think an international pen conference in Korea, an interview with him with uh, Studs turkle. Where uh he just kind of rails against Singman <laughs> Rhee, just like in the most like explicit terms, calls him an SOB. <laughs> and I and I talked to uh Kong's family about this and uh I think some of his the the family lore was like they were like, Yeah, we were at that 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 conference and the US officials were just like, Can you calm him down please? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well that that's incredible. Um, yeah, I think I don't know. I, I live in Queens and even now like like Sigmund Ree is is still like a hot topic. Like people post ads about him on like the, the um the New York public transportation, like the bus stations. Like we still we still see people like yeah, like that's still being.
2: Wait, wait, in what context? <laughs> I mean, who who is putting these mean. up?
0: Well, <laughs> Okay, this gets into like a whole other Thing. Um I think there are just like organizations of Korean Americans who and it's not just like Sigmund Rhee but like the way that you remember even like Pak Donggy like there's a mm. Pak Dong like memorial museum thing in like Flushing. Um and I Oh wow. <laughs> there's like a lot like and yeah so even now like there will be like ads that are run that's like oh this is like the whatever anniversary of like Sigmund Rhee doing like X like in like obviously like that it's like you know not not everyone in the community like agrees with that like people are putting money into like you know continuing to um (laughs) preserve certain opinions um which you know also presumes that like people are like quite angry on the other side as well so i don't know
2: it's that is fascinating (laughs) i didn't realize that
0: (laughs) yeah um yeah, so to get back to your, your book, um, in Minor Trans-Pacific, we keep circling back to thinking about Zainichi identification with the pre-war Chosan identity, mm-hmm. um, which for listeners refers to a unified Korean peninsula rather than kind of, you know, Hongkuk that. South Korea and many Korean Americans today identify with. And you quote a really fantastic passage from Kazuki Kaneshiro's Go that discusses citizenship. And when analyzing it, you tell us that nationality is quickly dismissed as a farce. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about this issue of citizenship as it shapes Sainichi experiences. Yeah,
2: that's a great question. Um, I I found this Text this novel to be um, especially useful because it's such a stark contrast to the Korean American understanding of nationality, in that um, you know if you are born in the U.S., uh, your citizenship isn't really under any legal question, or at least shouldn't be at least. Um, and so your your hybridized identity as a Korean American, um, it's never really under question either because most. Korean-Americans have immigrated from South Korea, right? So there's really no discussion or history of tension between North and South Korean-Americans in the U.S. But in Japan, that's it's a really different story in that uh, the occupation, of course, happened before Korea was divided. So there was, uh, you know, a, a, a displacement of people who nearly had no conception of Anything other than chosen, right? The the original Korea uh, before it was, uh, was um, demarcated by the DMZ, um, and so after liberation um, and after the Cold or during the Cold War, uh, for the Zainichi Koreans who had remained behind and had not repatriated they looked and watched in horror as, you know, North and South had become divided and these political allegiances uh, became uh, much more hardened. And so a question regarding whether they should align themselves with North or South, uh, the Northern or Southern governments uh, was real, you know, Vociferous debates uh, in the Zainichi community, and there were these kind of proxy um, organizations that uh, emerged in um, Japan. One called Mindan, which was associated with the South Korean government, and um, uh, what was the other one? The Soren, uh, which was associated with the North Korean government. And um, initially, you know, you have to understand that the Zainichi were, you know, repressed people, working class. Uh, didn't have a lot of opportunities for our mobility. So the Northern rhetoric of equality and, and you know socialist uh, principles was really quite appealing. And so there was actually uh, quite a bit of Zainichi um, communities who were uh, really uh, aligned with, or decided to align themselves with uh, North Korea, right? But this is this is all like after the fact, right? It wasn't like they were born in North Korea and immigrated to Japan. So it's a really kind of deliberate, conscious decision on their parts. And so uh, there was a period where, uh, as these negotiations between North and South Korea and Japan were occurring, uh, where the Zainichi could essentially choose which ones they wanted to be aligned with. And, um, um, and, and, and you know, it's, it's all quite messy and complicated. But at one point in the novel of Go, like uh, the family decides they want to switch from North Korean citizenship or North Korean affiliation to South Korean because they want to go to Hawaii on vacation, and you can't travel to the U.S. With, unless you're, you have a South Korean passport. And so, for the character uh, uh, in, in in Go, uh, Sugihara, so a national the question of nationality is just a question of like filling up paperwork. It's not something that is um, you know tied into a like a deep sense of history or national allegiance. Um, and so. That makes it in the novel, uh, you know, much more of a question about like, it just kind of raises the artifice of nationality. And so it's like you had to kind of dismisses nationality as a uh, marker of identity or Zainichi identity moves on to other things.
0: Yeah, you also have a really fascinating, like a really fantastic reading Um of how S- Sugihara taps into American racial discourse using American popular culture and especially music, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that as well.
2: Yeah, that was um, that was a way for me to understand how uh, uh, Kanashiro Kazuki and, and Sugihara, the character, uh, use the U.S. as as a sort of cultural mediating site, right, like a, a third space. Because uh, Zainichi politics is so um, po- kind of totalizing. Um, and there's like a long discourse in, uh, in Zainichi uh, politics where, I mean, there's a, there's a fierce uh, uh, pressure by Japanese society and the government for the Zainichi uh, to assimilate, right? Um, because there's yeah. this whole whole ideology of monoethnicity in Japan, right? And so you had to, your zainichi, you had to, be, you know, become one hundred percent Japanese by taking out a Japanese name and and living and 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 passing as Japanese, speaking Japanese, and, and not speaking Korean. Um, so for the first generation zainichi who um, kind of is still adhere to this ideology, returned to Korea uh, to you know adopt any kind of. Um, uh, Markets of Japaneseness was r- really kind of tantamount to ethnic betrayal, right? And so, within the Zainichi intellectual community, there became like this huge debate because if if you made any gestures towards um, uh, hybridity, that was you know uh, your you're, you're like uh, a cast-off, you're a pariah in the Zayish community, right? And so because everything was just, you know, all or nothing, black and white, um, you know, a person like Sugihara, who's in the novel second generation, doesn't really have anywhere to go if he is trying to explore a domestic uh, minoritized identity. And so um, for him, he he um, travels through the U.S. Uh, uh, through their cultural product, uh, uh, products and... Uh, American racial discourse as a way to kind of figure out what what a hybridized identity might look like, right? And so, you know, he references uh, people like Jimi Hendrix, um, Bruce Springsteen, even to kind of understand working working uh, working class politics, um, African American music and culture, um, and 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 eventually Korean American. Um, Uh, uh, subjectivity as a way to kind of negotiate for himself a, a middle identity between, you know, the all or nothing politics of the first generation and complete assimilation on the other end.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, I've always, I don't know, I, I get very excited and I think interested and I think there's a long, I don't know, history or theme of, um, like writers in korea or ethnic korean writers outside of korea um thinking about and reading like african-american literature i remember i don't know there's there isn't um there was like i don't know what you call these like a seminar at um columbia a couple of years ago where um there was like a korean like a korean poet like from mainland korea who was talking about how um they had first been like really inspired by reading like Korean translations of Harlem Renaissance poetry and that that really um, what do you call this um like motivated or provided a catalyst for their own writing within thinking about like Korean labor um but yeah it's always interesting to see how like um, American like racial discourse takes shape and, and changes as it moves overseas Um.
2: Yeah, there's a good number of scholars working in that um, intersection. I think uh, John Wukha from the University of Washington has a book coming out.
0: Yeah. Um, There's also a really provocative discussion in your next chapter of how Asian American studies claiming of the issue of comfort women as an Asian American topic, if you will, highlights contradictions within Asian American studies in terms of its relationship to the transnational and especially to the issue of Japanese empire. So I was wondering if you could tell us about that tension.
2: Yeah, I was I was quite curious about it when it occurred, and uh, because I at first blush, it just like a sort of cursory understanding of it. Uh, the issue of comfort women, um, I didn't I didn't immediately see a uh, natural intersection between. Sort of Asian American studies is domestic um, focus on social justice issues, um, and comfort women as sort of a, a, a global issue. Um, that's not to say that they're you know, that they're not allowed to talk. Or Asian American studies scholars aren't allowed to talk about uh, comfort women, but um, you know, it was it didn't. It wasn't immediately clear to me what that connection was, and um, what I. And this is not just me talking, but, you know, scholars like Lisa Yonayama and Candace Chu kind of pointed this out as well, that, um, you know, there there's a danger there in Asian American Studies scholars. Uh, embracing cover women is an issue because that can um, inadvertently justify the U.S.'s um, standing in the in, in the world as sort of this hegemonic force and global police person that has the right to intervene, um, in global affairs like, like that, um, and kind of positions Asian America as a sort of a, you know, unwitting junior partner in that and reinforcing that hierarchy. Um, but what I came around to, uh, understand how to understand it was, uh, it was and this is not just the, the scholarly side, but, you know, fiction writers like, um, Nora Okja Keller and, um, uh, uh, Chang Rae Lee were writing about comfort women as well. Was that my my the my the way that I kind of uh, uh, understood it was that it was again um, you know the legacy of Japanese colonialism and how it still existed in Korean America and and Korean American literature was still grappling with it and in other ways and the issue of comfort women was one sort of crystallizing you know high profile. Means by which uh, Korean American literature could um, meditate on the long tail of Japanese colonialism, um, and do you want me to, like go on about the some of the texts I, I thought about? it was
0: really interesting, but um, yeah, you can decide how much you want to talk about it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll give you the the high sort of the brush you know broad brushstrokes, but um, so I, I I do this reading of uh, Kim Yong's Clay Walls and Ri Lee's a Gesture Life. And I try to, and and I want to make sure that this is clear to your your listeners that I admire all the scholars that I'm critiquing here, and that I'm writing against in some ways, um, and I'm 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 indebted to them. Uh, But uh, I I kind of did a you know survey of all the the scholarship on the. The works, and you know, I found that it was re- they were really kind of incomplete because they f- kind of focused on the works solely as Asian American texts, and you know without the context of uh, Asian studies and uh, Japanese imperial studies, really the readings were just just half complete. And um, if you read them, if as I tried to do, I, if I read them as um, you know in conversation with um, uh, you know uh, discourses about uh, Japanese colonialism it becomes much more clear what, what these novels are trying to do and that they're not just talking about you know uh, a relationship between Korea and the US but Korea US and Japan in this kind of um, um, triangulated relationship as you know the title of my book uh, tries to articulate um, and it's only through that lens I, I argue that that the books uh, fully come into focus. And so I'll give you the example of, of, of Hata in Adjust Your Life. Have you read Adjust Your Life? Are you familiar with the book? I button?
0: haven't yet, but yeah, I need to.
2: Um, well, the, the most obvious thing that I, I thought that a lot of scholars missed was that, um, you know, Hata is living as a Japanese person in New Jersey in the present day. Um, he was a Zainichi ethnic Korean in the Japanese Imperial Army um, in, during the war. Um and you know it, that the fact that he still passes as Japanese in America because it's just totally unremarked upon <laughs> and, and to me that that is an obvious really uh, concrete example of the power of and the legacy of of the empire after the fact right uh, that it still remains in Korean American culture and Korean American literature and, and to just not talk about it is uh, you know doing a huge disservice to to the field yeah
1: I don't know about you but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook that's why I subscribe to Factor eating better is easy with Factor's delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals slash nbn50 to get 50% off
0: yeah thank you for that I think yeah I I love that you prefaced it with um what was it that I deeply that you deeply admire and respect scholars who have done this because I think um for me something that I have struggled a lot with in thinking about like Asian American studies and Asian studies is yeah how to how to engage and both went out, like, yeah, in in a way that um invites reciprocation. So it's not, it doesn't feel to um scholars who have been working on just like one side that like someone is so that it feels to them that like oh we're inviting this conversation instead of saying oh this conversation is wrong if that makes sense
2: (laughs) yeah no (laughs) I understand I mean you know we academics are are a fragile bunch um and so we always have to kind of make sure to dance around our, our egos um I mean, I try to, you know, I fully expect that years down the line, maybe, maybe you in, in 10 years, you'll write a scathing critique of my book and tell me where I went wrong. And that's, that's the nature of scholarship. That's how knowledge evolves. I try not to take it personally.
0: Um, yeah. So, um, chapter four, I love chapter four. Um, I'll start with that. Um, and it's about study abroad and the kinds of meaning it holds for Asian American and Zainichi Koreans and how that differs from the reasons both white Americans and South Koreans study abroad um, and kind of what can be made out of thinking about like institutionalized study abroad, especially, I think, as um, a point where um, there are these interactions. And so I, I for our listeners, I just want to foreground... My personal interest in this by saying that I'm Korean-American and the first way that I learned about Zainichi Koreans was while studying abroad in South Korea, um, which if you read minor trans-specific is simply unsurprising. <laughs> in the way it is described in minor trans-specific, it's like, okay, that's what happens. Um, but when I when I studied abroad in Korea on my first day of school, our our Korean history teacher told my class about Goryeo Saram, who... Um, Are ethnic Koreans who were deported from the Russian Far East to Central Asia by Stalin during World War II. And that was, and I think this echoes kind of what, David, you've been talking about. Like, that was my very first time of, like, thinking about that, like, Korean Americans are not the only group of, like, diasporic Koreans, but that there are many different, like, diasporic Korean communities that, you know, have kind of emerged out of, like, the aftermath of the Korean War um, and, well, I guess Japanese colonization, that that kind of long and continuing tale and so to return to your book i was just wondering if you could tell us about this movie soul searching like what it's about what drew you to it and um i think the interesting point also that you make at the end about um the kind of unilateral aspect of like oh i didn't know about it like the idea that um korean americans might not have known about this but that actually like other Korean diasporas have perhaps been more aware of like <laughs> that, that broader picture.
2: Oh, oh, oh you mean like, uh, if I could ask for clarification, you mean that like, like Korean Americans tend to be ignorant about other diasporic communities or Korean communities? Okay, right. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, that that tends to be the case, and I I had a, to be uh, uh, transparent. I had a fairly similar experience as you did, Jennifer, when I studied abroad um, during college. I went to Yonsei University for a summer, and um, you know, at, at the the summer session, I immediately, uh, I mean, to, to be even more sort of. Uh, Provincial, like I thought that California and Korean Americans was the center of the universe. Like, I didn't even know about Korean Americans in New York. I was like, who are they? They, they don't belong, right? Um, but I met, you know, Korean Americans from all over the states, but also from Europe and uh, South America uh, and, and Asia and, and, you know, Zanichi as well. Um, and that was just kind of a mind blowing experience for me. Um, and it was, you know, it may me. When I watched Soul Searching, um, and you know, this about a similar experience about a bunch of high school kids uh, who go to Korea for a summer, um, and they 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 uh, come face to face with those uh, members of those, of those community members, um, you know, it re- really resonated, and it made me realize, oh, this is really the only structural mechanism by which these encounters can can really happen. Right, so it made me think about study abroad as as a shaping force and a structure, and what kinds of encounters and contact zones they might bring forward. Um, and so, you know, Soul Searching was a small indie film um, that uh, uh, was sort of this like kind of take on the nineteen eighties John Hughes comedy, teen comedy, raunchy teen comedy genre. Um, but there was this really curious scene uh, where. Uh, some of the characters would encounter um, during certain moments of their trip uh, another group of high schoolers traveling from Japan and they you know they're presented as Japanese and they're they're coded as Japanese with their school uniforms and um, you, know, uh, the, you know they speak Japanese and so on um, but at the end of the film, the great you know the twist, the re- re- reveal is that um, they're actually Korean. They're Zainichi, right? And the tension that existed between the two, the American Korean American characters and the Zainichi Korean characters, kind of dissipates, and they realize, you know, oh, it's just, we're part of the same diasporic community, um, and uh, that led me to a reading of um, a, a Zainichi novel by. Uh, Yi Ji called Yuhi. Um, and do you want me to like get into to Yuhi at all? Really,
0: I really, I loved your discussion of Yuhi and especially of um, like language. Um, I I don't know if you, I don't know how much you want to expand on that, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's up
2: to you. Yeah, <laughs> um, and other other scholars, Chinese scholars, you know, who are more well versed in the area, and then I have talked about Yuhi and, and the, the subject of language. I'll, I'll just briefly touch upon it here. Um, but Yuhi is an interesting novel because it's written by a Zainichi author in Japanese, but in the world of the text, it takes place in Korea and is told through the perspective of of uh, Onni, um, who is Korean, and she is narrating the story in Korean. <laughs> and uh, it's and there's another character um, in the novel uh yuhi who who uh is a zainichi's uh student uh studying abroad in, in, in south korea and she has a really conflicted relationship with the korean language because she's not entirely fluent um and she's this sort of kind of uncanny presence in, in the novel um and so there's like multiple levels of linguistic displacement here right a novel written in japanese is supposed to be being narrated in korean um about a uh, person who's not entirely fluent in Korean. So it's really rich in that vein. But my interest in the the novel was about the fact that Yuhi, who's already left the novel by this point, she's already come back to Japan, has left this kind of huge void in uh, the narrator's life and the family's life. And um, in relation to that is uh, Onni's cousin, who has gone to study abroad in America, and decided to stay after. I think she married a Korean American. Um, as a point of contrast to to Yuhi, uh, who is sort of the, the failed um, st- uh, student, the failed returnee, uh, whereas the cousin is sort of the successful and virtuous uh, 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 student who who decided to you know, claim modernity by by marrying and and, and staying in New York. Um, and it was, it was a way for me to kind of conceptualize um, this international student as a figure who contributes to these um, points of contact rather than just like coming in and, you know, becoming Korean as best they can and going back and not really contributing anything. Like uh, I was trying to articulate how the, student, uh, the study abroad mechanism and the international student in the Korean diaspora context is really kind of a rich site for uh, exchange
0: yeah i also think for me it kind of highlighted like like study abroad figures as something that happens in like asian literature quite a lot too like in like modern korean literature like so many characters like study abroad um and yeah i mean i i don't know i think um your book really highlights like how the conversations it's engaging in um like more than anything i think your book just really highlights um how if you really look like these conversations are occurring in so many texts um, that just haven't been looked at in this, yeah. in this way before
2: yeah, particularly in Asian American literature it's it's the you know, study broad comes up um, you know and it's not uncommon, but it's a very different context than when you see it in like uh, you know mainstream you know you know white American literature yeah. um, that the purpose and uh, operations are, are are quite dissimilar.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to take us like too off topic, but I I do want to say to speak to um like the relationship to Korea and I had this really kind of I don't know, so several years ago I I got interested in Koryo who have since immigrated to New York City so I think earlier I said like Koryo are they were displaced to Central Asia but now a lot of them have immigrated to New York City and I, I talked to a Koryo pastor um in Brooklyn and he he gives sermons um in russian because like that yeah he he grew up in central asia but then he came to the u.s but he also like he also studied korean like the korean language and he described his becoming a pastor as being because he wanted to learn korean but the easiest way to learn korean in central asia was to like follow like korean missionaries and he was like oh like korean to me was the language of god and th- that's why i became a pastor because i wanted to learn korean And uh, so i think i don't know when i was reading your your discussion of like language and you i was like just thinking about like oh yeah like so much of like diaspora korean experiences are tied to like Different relationships to language, but like very much like thinking through the relationship to the yeah. Korean language.
2: That is so fascinating because um, as a point of contrast, in the Zainichi community, uh, Korean um, was sort of a language of violence and, um, um, and discord. Because uh, the first generation, when they would have disputes or arguments, they would code switch from Japanese to, to Korean so that their kids couldn't understand them. And so the second generation grew up understanding Korean as like this language of of just violence, and so it's it's just fascinating how how the language can mean uh, such different things to different people.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so as we head towards the end of your book, I wanted to get back to the overarching project you engage in. So in your last chapter, you read Minjin Lee's Pachenko alongside Kim Masumi's the burning grass house and for listeners who may not know the first is a book by a korean american writer that follows a zainichi family in japan and the latter is by a zainichi writer but is about korean americans in los angeles which is kind of a fantastic like juxtaposition and reading them together is really exciting and you take care to position these texts as both asian and asian american as you ask like which discipline do these texts fall into and you really emphasize that it's not a zero-sum game and you're asking for a dialogue between these two fields. And I think throughout Minor Turn Specific, as I hope listeners have been hearing, you make a really compelling case for the importance of this dialogue. So I want to ask what makes this dialogue challenging and what are the obstacles to achieving your vision of a sustained conversation between these two fields?
2: Yeah, it's... a uh... Uh, I mean, it's, it's, I I begin with that question about which discipline, uh, these texts belong to as this kind of a facetious question because they don't neatly belong to either category, right? Because, you know, uh, Pachinko is written by a Korean American, uh, written entirely in English for an English speaking, uh, readership about the Zainichi. So it's not necessarily, is it. You know, does it? Would you qualify it as Zainichi literature? Probably not. Would you qualify it as uh, Korean American literature? Well, maybe, probably not either. And the same questions could be posed for uh, the Burning Grass House by Kim Masumi, written entirely Japanese, about Zainichi and Korean American characters for a Japanese reading audience, right? And um, you know, the it's sort of an impossible question to answer because. We don't have the framework or the structures in place to answer the question, and so that raises the imperative for for building that infrastructure, right? And uh, you know, to, to answer your question about what's what obstacles are in the way, well, the entirety of our academic disciplines and how they're set up right now. <laughs> um, just because you know, in Asian studies, you might be interested in that uh, in Asian American uh, literature as a point of uh, comparison. But that's going to get hammered out of you really quickly. Uh, Your advisors, your colleagues are going to ask you, why are you doing that? That's no place. No one's going to hire you, so on and so forth. And the same might be said for Asian American studies, although maybe I think Asian American studies tends to be a little bit more open and less traditional than Asian studies. But if you are interested in studying Asian literature as as a comparative uh, juxtaposition, Asian American studies may not be... Uh, may not you know the hiring committees may not be um, as understanding or may not have the sort of framework in place to understand what where you're going with the project right and that's changing slowly I, there's definitely scholars who are coming up who have have made inroads but they have they're facing pretty heavy headwinds um, in that um, again it's it's everyone's kind of reinventing the wheel as they go along right because um, there's not like uh, a, a shared language quite yet that everyone can kind of um, um, come to the table with, right? In um, infrastructurally, just speaking to Asian American studies programs, there's not a whole lot of emphasis on second language acquisition. Um, and that's a real loss, I think. Um, and I, this is the way they came to this book is just an accident and a half a sense of history. Like I just happened to go to Japan, I just happened to find this interesting. I just happened to start, you know, uh, studying Japanese in grad school. And if I didn't have those uh, moments, those accidents, this you know, this book would never have come to fruition, right? And so, what I think would be helpful is if um, you know, even at the undergrad level or master's level. There was a real emphasis on um second language acquisition and even though that there's a lot of forces in place that are pushing back against it even in in, in, in disciplines uh that are not related to uh comparative uh events right um but that's you know that's something that you know i i am look at asian sites and i even though that there are forces against that, Asian studies is still, of course, they're holding it strong um, to second language acquisition um, and quite serious about it. And there's a lot of funding for it. Um, and I think something similar should happen in Asian studies or Asian American studies, I should say. Um, and, you know, with Asian studies, I have tried when, when I was writing uh, conference papers, versions of the chapters, I tried presenting at um, the Association for Asian Studies and I would, my papers keep getting rejected <laughs> because they just didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> uh, after a while, I just gave up and I was like, well, okay, I just, I guess they're not interested. And the irony is that now that my book came out, now there's all, you know, all these uh, centers are inviting me to give talks saying, oh, it's really interesting work. Like, where were you guys 10 years ago when I was writing the conference paper? <laughs> um, so, I, you know, it, it just, it, it's going to be a long, laborious process. Um, but I think there is a real inflection point right now where popular culture has reached a point where there's a lot more mainstream interest that could lead to some interesting conversations. The Pachinko TV series is coming out, I think, in a month or two. Um, and that is going to you know raise similar questions uh, about dis- disciplinary categorizations um, because who's going to talk about Pachinko? Is it going to be the Asian studies folks or the Asian American studies folks right um, Why not both why not have you know a rich mutual conversation?
0: Yeah speaking of that I actually I think I saw it on the syllabus of like a Korean studies class at Columbia like Pachinko. <laughs> Which kind of it shocked me. Um, I think both because I'm like, wow, a professor is assigning this super thick book. That, that, is everyone going to read it? But also because, as you've been talking about, like, um, it's yeah, it, it is, it's a book that kind of yeah is it doesn't fit neatly into one of the two categories. But yeah, thank you so much for talking about and telling us about um, really like the institutional barriers to kind of achieving this this vision of really um, a dialogue between Asian and Asian American studies that I hope happens and I hope grows. Um, so, so David, we've taken up a lot of your time. So I have one last question. What are you working on next?
2: Uh, <laughs> that's a difficult question to answer because um, I have, I just finished this book a little while ago, and I have like a couple of half-baked ideas for our next project. But um, given what we've been through the past two years, I just had a, a, as a kid a year and a half ago. I'm giving myself permission to, to lay fallow for a bit and kind of recharge. Um, and so you heard it here, folks. I'm, I'm giving myself permission just to, to not think for a while. I'm just going to read a bunch of random books and see what, where it takes me.
0: Thank you so much for that. I, I love it. And I love that you can tell us about that. So <laughs> I, I look forward to kind of seeing how... I think your ideas change after a period of rest. I think rest is so important to, yeah, giving us the permission, I think, to be courageous and take new risks in our work, which I think Minor trans specific,
2: definitely does, as
0: you've been telling us. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: It's was my pleasure, Jennifer. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, take care, everyone.